save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. You've got to look into the light. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintemeyer. My guest for episode 106 is John Kulpitz, a.k.a. Kid Millions. He's best known as the founder, drummer, and co-frontman of Brooklyn-based Oneida, who have put out 15 albums since 1997. You're right now hearing Sheets of Easter, the opening track from their fifth album, 2002's Each One Teach One. We're going to be largely today focusing on his more recent soul efforts. He's released five under the name Man Forever since 2010. And the most recent album is 2017's Play What They Want. We'll be discussing You Were Never Here, featuring Yola Tango on vocals, and Twin Torches, featuring Laurie Anderson on vocals. We'll then look at a song, All in Due Time, that John sings from the most recent Oneida album, 2018's Romance. Now, he's also released some records as Kid Millions and many collaborations. We're going to conclude by listening to Nine Years Facing Wall by the Fox Millions duo with Greg Fox. The album is called Biting Through from 2019. To learn about all of John's many projects, go look at johnwilliamcolpits.com. To learn more about this podcast, see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you want to support what we're doing, check out Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. Folks that were signed up for that would have gotten this episode early and ad-free. So I will have played a little bit of Sheets of Easter by Oneida from Each One Teach One 2002. You had picked that as a representative groove. I know that's within your early period. The first album was 1997, but it was already several albums in. Was that a kind of a transition point from more song-oriented to more long-form groove? Or it seems like some of those long-form groove elements were, were in there right from the start, even. Yeah, they were. We kind of stumbled across that way of playing really early on. I mean, we liked Krautrock and Can and Hawkwind. And so we were already doing extended jams that were minimalist somewhat. When we came up with Each One Teach One, it was actually just something I thought would be interesting. Like, what if we just played the same note for a long time, and then somehow there was a cue, and then we changed? And actually, I saw My Bloody Valentine play on their Loveless tour. So during that show, they have a song where they do that for like 20 minutes straight. And initially, I hated it. You know, this was in 92, maybe. I was like, God, what are they doing? This is horrible. But then as the song progressed, I started to transform. And by the end, I thought, wow, that was brilliant. (laughs) And actually, one of our, Bobby's mother came to see us play. And she said, oh, you guys kind of remind me of Philip Glass. (laughs) That was her reference point. Well, I like the idea of transforming a vocal element into a percussion element, basically, by just repeating it like that. I mean, it, of course, sounds like a cheer at a game, that particular one. Not that that's an element that you use repetition in other songs that don't have that particular piece of the recipe. Let's use that to transition to 
We're going to hear one of your most recent. You were never here from Play What They Want 2017. So it's about a almost a nine-minute song. Got several kind of distinct sections to it, but it's definitely very groove-oriented in that, you know, you lock into a thing. It's a pretty complicated thing to start with and sort of build on that. Do you want to say a little about what the approach was on this album and if there's a through line between what you were doing with the Sheets of Easter kind of groove stuff to this? There's definitely a through line. It's just... I have just been drawn to meditative and trance-inducing rhythms, and it's another way in, I suppose. When I wrote You Were Never Here, I was inspired by a Max Roach tune from one of his records, Percussion Bittersweet. It's called, like, Garvey's Ghost. There's this very almost distorted cowbell and it's a very compressed and intense percussion introduction which with really amazing abby lincoln singing that was just a jumping off point for me so sure there's a through line the through line being me
Actually, let's break it down. Talk about that intro. So it sounds like it's in five. Say a little about how the layering works on this. This is one drum kit and then two different cowbells with different pitches. Is that what I'm hearing here? It's two drum kits, some cowbells. When you're coming up with an initial riff like this, especially when you're writing, I know you've done quite a few dual drum kit setups, which I assume, so like the Man Forever Suite, which you on your website kind of list it under pieces. In other words... Am I right that some of this is actually written out, you know, so that somebody else could take this and get their two drum kits and do that? Or It gets written out after the fact, because if I'm trying to teach it to somebody else, it's just easier. Or occasionally, yeah, if I'm playing with musicians in another city and there's not much rehearsal time, I usually want to send them something that's written out. No, that's not how I compose I had a demo of this tune that I had just multi-tracked. And then I went to this artist's residency called Avalok Farms with the band Teague. And I just played them the demo and we just went to our studio and improvised off that demo for basically a day. (laughs) Over the course of the day, we kind of built the different sections of the tune. Once we recorded it, like a week later, I took that home and cut it down a bit. I just edited it with the engineer, you know, to make it a little less rangy, say. At that point, this stuff initially was going to be just percussion and voice. But when I got the recordings home, I said, well, I don't know if this is going to work like I imagined. And so I gave myself the liberty to just add whatever instrumentation I was hearing. And so it just built from there. Okay, so it suggested this Latin thing. And so, okay, let's get Brandon Lopez to put that bass line on it. So you had the rough parts in your head in terms of like, if you get him in there, are you kind of humming the first bars of it or just say, you know, do something that sounds vaguely samba-ish or something? How are you relating to the musicians here? It's definitely Latin influence, no doubt. I had an idea for the bass line, for sure, but I also like just trust the people that I bring in to play something that's going to surprise me and be better than anything I could have thought of myself. So Brandon is a perfect example of that. I didn't have to really over-explain I think I probably gave him a few reference points, but you know, he's a very deep player, so it wasn't like I needed to, uh, he just did what he did and he sounds great. (laughs) He like made it actually in a very interesting way. If you take him out, the percussion sounds a little less together. His playing actually gelled the performance, which is a testament to him. Yeah, that's why it's so surprising that that's an overdub. It sounds so central. So you've got very distinct sections in here when you were bringing in the piano and then the harp, I think is a little piece of genius that's sort of suggested by the flowing piano lines. Like, what would make it even more flowy? What would make it flow all the way to the sky? Oh, I had a harp over that. How did the decision to use both those instruments come here? 
I think I was inspired by Coltrane and McCoy Tyner and Alice Coltrane. And I just thought, can this piece support that kind of playing? I just heard it happening when I was listening back to the track before the overdubs. It was really just let me see if it works. And Brandon's close friend is the pianist. Sam Yulsman is what I have down here, yeah. I discussed what I was looking for, and he sent, actually sent me a demo, and I was like, okay, that's too much. And we did maybe three takes in the studio, and his takes were so brilliant. Each one was beautiful. And then, of course, Brandy Younger, who's the harpist, she's fantastic, and she's very much inspired by Alice Coltrane, so I just thought, hey. <laughs> so she was playing off the stuff that Sam had already put down on piano because it definitely sounds like it's an extension of the piano part, and that none of that comes in until you've set up the groove, you have this vocal section, which I see that's where Yola Tengo comes in. So they just came in for a background vocal harmony session? Is that how that worked? To be fair, I would say they're the lead. I'm singing too, but they sound better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, they just came in to sing, yeah. The lyrics were already there. They were playing from the start with the percussion thing. With everything, I was just listening and I thought, wow, I think they would sound great on this. They're great singers, so I'll see if they'd be open to doing it. And they were. It was one of those kinds of miracles. So this distinct thing, and then that's all done before three minutes in. I want to play one little section here. that we've been grooving on here. And then you start adding the like machine gun fire that serves to build this. It seems like this is only possible because you're doing dual drum set so that you can keep it going while then adding the frills. Carson Moody is the other drummer and he's like, everybody's much better than me uh, in terms of technique. And Carson, I can't remember exactly, but that just might've been something we developed as we were building the piece improvising like a way to transition i wanted that break and i'm sure the group was like let's find a way to hit that and build to it and that was carson's contribution and he's he nailed it yeah let me play the break here Say a little about how the second section with its mostly hi-hat and still with the... I had written timbales, but I guess I've never heard such a spastic cowbell part before. Was it one guy just playing two sticks on a cowbell, like doing doing rolls and things? Yeah, it's just single stroke, whatever, 16th notes, sticka dicka 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 And playing the hi-hats against that, okay. Yes. We enter a new phase here with the soprano singer... We're about to get the piano, we're about to get the harp, and then, yes, so it's the Quince Contemporary Vocal Ensemble, where you feel like, it needs some high choir kind of thing to fill it out, let's get them in. Or with a vocal ensemble, I would think it would be different dynamics in terms of like exactly how much you're dictating to them, but you tell me, I don't know anything about Quince in particular. We met Quince at Avalok, the Avalok Farms, where we developed the percussion for 
the songs that I believe we're looking at today, they were just cool people. And they were just brilliant at what they did. And, you know, I like to just be open to different possibilities. Before I had an idea of how I would use them, I just said, would you guys be open to singing on this record that I'm working on? They said, yes. So what I had to do, I wrote their parts. Of course, what that actually meant was I demoed them and sent them the demos. Like with you doing little falsettos? <laughs> no, uh, that would be bad. I, I think I just played it on like an electronic instrument in like garage band. And I was really interested in vocal arrangement. There's a British composer, John Tavener, who has written stuff for, you know, Anonymous 4. And I just love some of his compositions. And I looked at them and got a chart for one of his pieces that I thought was really beautiful. And I realized, oh, wow, it's like, not that complicated. There's four voices. And to make these beautiful arrangements, you really don't have to do a lot. Plus, a human voice is somewhat limited in terms of the range, and especially the functional range. So I just said, okay, I'm going to keep it simple. I'll just write small parts that don't really do a whole lot in terms of pitches, but the harmonies I thought would work well, and I felt like it would be an interesting, weird addition to the piece. We pumped up, we've added all these elements. What makes it worth going for five minutes or so through that section is still the changes in dynamics on the drums, that you're not clicking into a steady beat. I mean, that would have been fine. That would have been plenty, because <laughs> you've got the swooping piano, you've got the harp, adding that sort of machine gun thing, pretty surprising. Like if this was Bitches Brew or something, which is very much reminds me of this sort of long form fusion thing, you don't necessarily in that situation have one of the drummers go into just a, you know, it sort of makes it much less mellow. Well, I'm not like trying to be mellow. It certainly sounds good. <laughs> it's very cool. Not a criticism. I'm oh, just oh yeah. You can criticize me. I don't, that's fine. <laughs> So right near the end. This just sets up what the whole end of the song is going to be, that it's going to be this. I always think of, and it's just because what I was listening to growing up is Peter Gabriel's Rhythm of the Heat, that now we're entering the big African drum section that's just going to power through and it's super effective and just makes all the chaos that was going before kind of even out into this really high energy thing to, to finish it up. Is that a part that you edited down at all? Or? It was quite edited, yeah. Of course, all American popular music is African influence. So yeah, I would say maybe that wasn't what I was going <laughs> for, but it's not wrong. I just wanted something monolithic, I thought. Something that wasn't so light, because when you're dealing with the first half of the piece it's like 
more of the high end and then we move to toms so it becomes less light. So that's another spot once you've established this and it goes on for it's almost three minutes at that level of intensity. Is there any sort of rule of intuitively when you feel like, okay, it seems like maybe it was the particular drum ensemble that, it, you know, there is progression even within this. Somewhere in minute eight, it starts getting extra loud and crazy. So it's not just that we've gone into this meditative monolithic thing and then it goes for a while and it could stop at any point. It could stop after 30 seconds, could stop after 10 minutes. And it's sort of arbitrary. Like there is actual determined growth to this one. What's your thinking on how long to make the song go? I mean, I listened to what we had hundreds and hundreds of times, and I just decided when it needed to change. So this is even before you added the harp and piano. This is with the raw drum performance. I think I overdubbed the harp and piano to a longer version of the piece. And then, you know, you just listen and listen, and you think, well, this goes on too long. I'm going to cut it. Or I want this to last almost too long which is what that monolithic section I felt needed. It needed to be a little bit tense in that, like, when is this going to end kind of thing. Hey, let's stop just for a second for a little break. I need to talk about our sponsor this week, which is Keeps. Two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35. With today's advancements in science, Keeps offers proven treatments can combat the symptoms of hair loss. Now, my hair is thinning on top. And I have long despaired finding objective information about whether there is any kind of cure. I felt like anytime I would look at anything online about this, it's somebody trying to sell you something. Well, Keeps tells you right in their literature, there is no cure for baldness. There is slowing the process, preventing further baldness. Keeps has revolutionized the way men are treated for hair loss. You used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. But thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online so I went to their site, I did the initial thing, use your computer camera or your phone camera to take pictures of your head. They ask you a bunch of questions about your symptoms, so you're getting a treatment recommendation specific to you. An actual doctor will look at this, recommend a course of treatment. You can then spend all the time you want looking up what the materials they recommend are, message that doctor, and you can decide for yourself whether you actually want to check out and do this. So I have not used the product at this point, but I'll say that if you're curious about this, you kind of thought all this stuff was just snake oil. This is kind of a pain-free opportunity to look into it. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors, and nearly 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just $10 a month. The drugs are delivered to you discreetly, and for a limited time, you can get your first month free. Check it out. It's keeps.com slash examined. You can set up your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash examined. And now back to the show. Let's move on to the second one. I'm not going to section this out quite as much since we kind of have, there's a similar structure to this one in that there is a structure and it's not verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It's like a piece with distinct bits. So this is from the same album, Twin Torches, with Laurie Anderson coming in in the second half for some cool overdubbed vocal stuff. Do you want to say a little bit about where you're at with this song before we play it in full? I'm really happy about how it came out. This record is kind of like that. It's different compared to some of my other ones where I felt like these things are failures of some kind. But this album I listened to hundreds of times just making it. I haven't really since it's been put out, but I felt like it was a great accomplishment. I guess that sounds like it's 
not humble. It's more like I just asked some really talented people to perform on this thing and they made it cool. <laughs> I think maybe I just assembled it, let's say. Definitely some of it has, if you're sitting down for a jam, no matter how talented the people are, and then it's done, like, well, that's one way of making a song, and it was cool, but what you've just described with this first song sounds like much more of your brain power over a longer period of time went into putting that one particular one together. Mm, perhaps. <laughs>
We've got for this first section, Quince is back and more exposed here. So this is the same kind of thing that you were demoing it, poking on a keyboard and sending them that, or was there more? It was the same process because they did both tracks at once. They did them in the same day at the studio in Chicago. I had a deadline. I had to send them the stuff by a certain date. So I did that. I tried to keep it simple because I thought they could shine and they did. So that's only for about a minute here. That could have gone on much longer for the intro, but then we actually enter a new key. So you're setting up this different, what am I hearing here? She's playing violin. Some electric piano sound? Yes. Sustained electric guitar, maybe? That's Emily Manzo playing electric piano. Okay. Again, when you're putting this together, so was like the electric piano part, was that a more or less written thing or chord thing that you'd written to kind of establish where the song is going and then the violin comes later and the other frosting? Yeah, the electric piano came first. Lori was the final piece because I had actually recorded my own vocals to the piece with different lyrics and a different performance. And I decided that it didn't sound good. (laughs) So it kind of rebuilt from there and thought, well, maybe Laurie Anderson would be open to doing something on this piece. Well, so that's interesting. So there was, I assume in your other vocal, there was some melodic element that is now gone. Is that right? Some significant top line that instead... We have her talk singing, cool imagery, a very mantra-like. It definitely fits with the flavor of what was going on. So you hadn't even planned the violin part when you wrote this originally then either. That was just a kind of a bonus. No, because I just thought Lori was going to do vocals. But then when I got to her house, she pulled out her violin and also set up her synthesizer that she connects her violin to. And I thought, wow. Great! (laughs) I hadn't thought that she would do that, but it was a bonus. So about 2.20, then we get the full drums entering. What do you feel like the mood of this piece is? This gets pretty dark. (laughs) Initially, when I talked to Lori about the piece, I imagined her character as being a sentinel of sorts, kind of looking over a sleeping city. I suppose it's dark. I had a reason why it was called Twin Torches. I totally forget what it is now. (laughs) It's something, some grief mythology reference. But the lyrics were written conceptually. I had actually written lyrics that I 
sent to Lori. The idea was I was going to use 20 of the oldest words in English that are still in common usage. My idea was like, I will just use them within the lyrics. But Lori said, why don't we just exclusively use those 20 words and no more? And so I said, oh, cool. That sounds great. And so we sat down for 10 minutes and really Lori wrote them. She would just kind of type them in and then look at me. (laughs) And I would just like, yeah, sounds great to me. Maybe I made one contribution, perhaps one line from my original thing remained. It's funny. Yeah, it has a grim maybe tenor, but I don't know. Yeah, it feels ominous, certainly. Well, that's what I was wondering, because it's still kind of meditative. Whenever you have this mantra-like repetition, then it's going to sound meditative. But of course, usually meditation songs don't have such prominent drums. So it's like a different stage of meditation. It's, of course, not at the level of the monolithic end of You Were Never Here, but it's still like a nice wall of sound 16th note thing that is continuing with some variation on it for a while. Is this actually, is this one drum kit or is this also two? It's two drum kits and two percussionists, yeah. It really gives you a lot of flexibility to have certain elements of it get faster and build tension as we get toward the end of the song. Just a couple little spots here. So there's another stop here. Let's, let's talk about that little transition. Say a little about how you're structuring, again, this could just be a long jam, but you allowed it to build to that extent such that you had to do something. And so stopping it and then having a full-on Wagnerian, <laughs> Clarion guitar sort of thing, that was pretty effective. Are you thinking of this like as if you were writing a symphony, or are you thinking of it more as a drum groove? We had the kind of structure of the demo I worked off of with Teague, the percussion trio was kind of the first half. The section with the odd meter and odd accented group thing was more Teague's contribution because they're really brilliant in that way. They can just can kind of do anything. They can be like, ah, oh, let's do something where we accent every third beat in a, you know, I don't know, five, whatever. They're crazy in that way. They just kind of do all this math and then just execute it. So that was what they did there. And what was awesome about it, which is kind of my contribution, is that I could not play (laughs) that sequence. It's really hard and weird. I tried for a while as we were working on it, and then I said, you know, I'm just going to solo over this. And I think it actually makes it really interesting, or it, it takes it out of maybe just like a proggy, mathy's realm and brings in that human element. Although it's all played by people, I don't want to make it, it's not like that extreme a contrast, it's just a nice contrast. And so, yes, that section was developed by Teague. It was cool. It sounded, it was like, wow, this sounds great to me. Let's keep it. (laughs) That's how it works. I'm not trying to be anybody. It's really intuitive. It's like, does it feel exciting to me? Let's do it. Cool. Great. Let's move on. I mean, I like to make decisions. 
even though this record took me a year and a half to make, in certain areas, I really like to make a decision fast. I don't like to labor over the performance. However, I needed to develop ideas <laughs> to have to get to the point where I was asking Laurie Anderson to do vocals. I mean, that was like months and months and months into the process. Let me play one more little section. I had written about eight and a half minutes in that the drums are losing. Something was going crazy with the rhythm here. I think it was just that the underlying groove is still going like in the bass. Is there actual bass on this? I, I didn't actually ask you that. Yes. But the drums themselves have just, what is the term in drumming where you're tremoloing basically and we're not necessarily pay attention to what the rhythm count of the song is anymore? The buzz rolls. Yeah, it sounded like it was just when you said, I'll let them do what they're doing and I'm going to solo over it. That's what that sounded like to me. But actually in playing it back, it sounded like maybe all the drums were kind of doing that and leaving it to the bass to just keep the going and that it was just being a little more freeform. But you're saying no, everybody's still counting and locked in. It's just a lot of notes. Somebody keeps time. I mean, yes, we could be playing against the time and like not really worrying about being in the meter or in the rhythm, but somebody's keeping it because that's how the bassist is playing along. <laughs> right, that would make sense. <laughs> Unless you're playing with a click. All right, let's just talk about the very end of the song. Okay, just that the drums have stopped, there's a little bing in the guitar or something, and the synth chords continue and kind of fade out. It would have been perfectly acceptable to have a wall of drums, then everything suddenly stop here. What was your thought in how you were going to end this in this more subtle way? It felt like the tide going out, maybe. We had a really elevated, intense moment and journey, and then it just fades. I think that was really... It not like a hard stop, more like to have that decrescendo kind of feel. So you're left at the end of it, maybe contemplating all that <laughs> just occurred. Well, and I like the tide imagery here because that fits well for with me the fact that you actually have multiple chords. Then <laughs> that's the end of the song. That it's not just da 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 that you go to da da da, which which gives it that ominous. It's you know adds to it that that particular progression makes it sound a little darker. I know in a jam session it's hard to not just stay on one chord, right? A lot of those Hawkwind things I think really are just let's have a drone do the and then this can last as long as you want and you can play with as much rhythm but to actually then add a second chord that is going back and forth in this end tone you know gives it a little more structure I like the idea of that is the tide kind of going in and then going out and going in i think it's only one chord but maybe you're right i guess it changes so this might have been the bassist just doing this it was phil manley he might have like emphasized certain things 
Which is cool. I mean, he also did the harmonium, too. Yeah, because here's the first chord. So that's just in the bass. So that wasn't even something you wrote. That's crazy. I don't have the best ideas always. <laughs> so, I mean, this stuff, it's really collaborative. Well, speaking of collaboration, let's get to the third song, Oneida, that has been most of your career playing with these guys. Do you want to say something before we play All in Due Time from the latest album, Romance 2018, of what the difference is in terms of how you write with that group and this song in particular? Well, with Man Forever, it's just me. Or I make the final decision. In Oneida, it's a group effort, so it's always determined by all of us. That particular song, All In Due Time, it actually started, I think, with a jam that I wasn't a part of. Some of the guys played along to a drum machine, and they might have even played it for me, and I was like, well, I can hear some like drums, like I'll just overdub some drums, and then... Oftentimes with Oneida, if I'm feeling like this pull to do lyrics, it's just something like, I was like, oh, I can do this. This makes sense to me, and I can write lyrics, and it's usually a pretty natural progression, and you just kind of call it. You're like, I'll do this one.
Okay, so you're saying this intro primus sort of slap bass section, that was just something that... <laughs> oh, man. That is not slap bass. Oh, my God. But all right, I'll take it. Wow. Whatever you hear is fine. What is this thing we're hearing initially? That's the drum machine. Okay, that's the drum yeah. machine, <laughs> including the boom, bap, boom, bap, boom, boom, bap. Like, there's pitches there. You're, so you're saying that's even that is drum machine. Slap bass has its place, but it's probably never been done in Oneida. So that's cool. <laughs> I, I was surprised because I don't hear that. That doesn't seem to be the general role of the bass in the band is to, <laughs> to do it. Is to I love it. Have the guy from Primus come in and layer something over. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, so is this very much like whoever is playing the instrument determines the song or determines what that instrument is doing at any given time? Or is there, hey, I hear some treble stuff over here. What is the level of communication? Is it really very just looking at each other and playing against each other until something sounds good? Or is it more deliberate than that? It can be a little of everything. We trust each other's impulses. So a lot of stuff emerges from just improvising. So occasionally people would be like, oh, I hear X, I hear something here, want to try it? And it's pretty, I mean, we've been a band for over 20 years, so we've figured out how to make music together, you know? It's been most of the same people, right? It's been at least you and Bobby, and then did some of the guitarists switch out? I founded the band, and then quickly after that, Bobby and Jane joined. So... In a way, it was like a project between myself and Papa Crazy, who he actually quit in like 2002. So for all intents and purposes, it's been myself, Bobby, and Jane. And then we added Barry London and Shaheen Motia later. But they're fully members, you know, at this point. But yeah, we've had different guitarists in and out, and sometimes James McNew plays bass with us live, and it's still somewhat fluid. Was it always you and Bobby switching off on the vocals? Because there's obviously great jumps over your evolution in how much vocals there is, what the role of those are, and some of the older stuff. I guess even some of the fairly new stuff, like the character voice can be quite different as opposed to this very light thing you're doing in All in Good Time. Initially, with the early band, Papa Crazy did a lot of the vocals. However, we each would contribute a few tunes. And then when he stopped, we had to step into the void. And so I think at this point, Bobby sings most of it or a larger percentage than others. I don't love singing. I do it. It doesn't really make me that happy. Plus, it sucks to relive lyrics. It's just not my ideal state for performing, but I do it. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about. We're not going to talk about the meaning of these lyrics that you wrote. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I was going into this, but in just in terms of what the role of lyrics at all, we've had lyrics in all three of these songs, but they're not the main thing. They're just, they're, they're kind of icing on the cake. When I've seen clips of Oneida online, the lyrics are turned pretty low, whether that's just the filming of the particular gig. 
That seems like it's an intentional thing. Like, I don't hear that on all the studio stuff. Some of the studio stuff, the lyrics are very prominent and, you know, sounds, maybe this is the Papa Crazy stuff that I'm thinking of from the early albums. It's a different purpose that the lyrics can be kind of another layer, another instrument, or they can be like, this is a distinct way of expressing myself. When you write lyrics like this, is it one take? Is it you're sitting there playing drums and things are coming out of your mouth? Or is it poems written late at night or what? Yeah, it's important. The lyrics are, I think Oneida lyrics are good, typically. Yeah. I think perhaps we're probably insecure about our voices, and that's maybe why they're lower. I think they could stand to be louder over the years. The words could stand to be louder in the mix, but that's just how it happened. I just was a little confused that, like, if I'm in a band, it's because my main thing even though I've done some classical composition stuff, is writing lyrics and singing them. And so the idea of then, as a band, we decide we're going to do a couple whole albums that are going to have no lyrics on them at all. Right. That would be a substantial jump. Oh. <laughs> but if it's, it just kind of depends how you think about what the place of it is and what, you know, how important they are to the, to the music. I think we just look at it as music. If it supports lyrics... We just have a broad view of what constitutes Oneida. So sometimes it doesn't make sense to add words. Now for this particular melody, I kept thinking Joy Division. I had thought this whole thing was in a minor key. But you're singing the major third there. Is the whole thing modal as far as you know? In other words, there's no third at all? It's just the drone and the five, and that's what gives you the the flexibility to kind of add the crazy stuff that you had, as opposed to, you know, a guitar playing a whole chord. I wouldn't wouldn't know. (laughs) All right. You're sitting behind the drum kit on this one. I just sing, and if it works, uh, yeah. Just looking what the structure is here. So there's just the one set of verses, right? And then you hit the all in due time. Oh, no, no. It does have a second verse here and then wraps up pretty quick. I mean, this is just a a wonderfully concise song. It would have been very easy to, uh, we've got a little bit of vamp at the end, but to just keep this going, is this a group decision in terms of, (laughs) is this going to be one of the tight singles here? I mean, you know. Oh, nine, nobody cares about, I mean, okay, I don't want to be false about it. We have some fans, but let's be real. We make the decisions solely for the music. We have very realistic expectations about who's listening. So to us, it's just like, it's going to be short. I mean, there's hundreds of songs we've written, you know, some are long and some are very short. It's just, there's a, a lot of wonderful, diverse approaches to popular music, and we try to walk down all those paths. Well, let me just ask, when you play this live, are there 10-minute versions of this? Or is it like, no, this is the arrangement, and this is how it ends, and that's just how it goes? There are not 10-minute versions, but you know, it's probably a little longer, because sometimes I have to be like, whoops, let me catch that verse on the way back, or, you know... Certain sections we like to extend, but nothing crazy. When you do this live, like the echo on the voice, 
do you just do that with multiple singers or do you have a particular delay pedal that you're stomping on? You're not worrying about that. We don't recreate that. I would like it if the guys sang, but they don't back up this piece for whatever reason. I don't know why, but they just don't. Before we get to the closing song here, so are you still playing gigs regularly with Onina? You've got like seven different bands going, according to your website. And so this is what I'm wearing. It seems like are a lot of these projects just kind of a, oh yeah, we get together once and we record something like this Fox Millions duo that we're getting to, or is this a duo that has built up through some live gigs and... Do you want to talk about some of the various things you're working on here? Oneida is still a priority for us. There's a lot of projects. I make part of my living doing this, so I just try to take opportunities that come my way and seem intriguing creatively. The reality is, because I, I'm more focused on the professional aspects, so to speak, And plus, I had a car accident like a year and a half ago, and it kind of changed my perspective about things. I don't really just play just to play. It has to be something I really believe in. I also need to get paid. So, you know, sometimes that means some projects don't play a lot. And I know Greg feels the same way. We're happy to play shows, but not for like a door deal you know on a Tuesday night I have a lot of projects I just play in as many varied contexts as makes sense you know there are always things that are exciting and bring out different parts of my creativity you know there's the Jim Sauter duo the saxophonist from Borbito Magus that I've made a number of records with I just had a new one come out last month and then I do a duo with Sarah Bernstein and we have a record coming out next month and I just like to keep busy and see what I can do how I can like get the music out there realistically not a lot of people are listening so it's very much under the radar but that's okay I hope I have realistic expectations at this point yeah so your day job is I teach drums. I write about drums. I do get hired to play, too. I was a drummer for Royal Trucks for a year and a half. And so, yeah, it's like many, many different income streams, you know? I'm seeing a big list of people you've played with. The Lee Ronaldo album, I'm excited about that. Playing on the Stephen Malkmus. I mean, are these kind of just particular sessions that you just go in for the day and, okay, we need some drums down and... You're very, very fast and can do whatever they want. So I hope I'm efficient with the Steve. I mean, the Lee Ronaldo record, it, it was a day. I just had a day. It was a half a day, in fact. I played on like, five or six tunes. Well, the, Steve Malcolm is, he joined Soldiers of Fortune, which is a project I do like a rock band thing. That was a one night type of thing. Yeah, I do get hired to play drums on records, too. Whether I'm, like, the best studio cat out there is another question, but I think some people do hire me because they like my playing. Is that a struggle in terms of, you know, if, you, if you're doing studio gigs, that they would kind of want you to do less than would be natural for you? <laughs> when I did the Marnie Stern album, I think I had to really simplify my playing. <laughs> Which, I mean, in a good way. I mean, it's for the better. It's for the best. 
I think it turned out great. And I think since I learned a lot in that session, I had to kind of realize that less is more. <laughs> well, thanks so much for doing this. It's just been fascinating listening to this mix of improv and composed and band stuff. It's just amazing drumming, of course. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for talking to me. Well, let's wrap it up with Nine Years Facing a Wall, the shortest song from the Fox Millions duo Biting Through 2019. Do you have a couple words to say about this before we say goodbye? Well, I just think it's crazy that this album didn't get more love, I guess. I mean, whatever. It, it's life, but it's, it's a really cool record. I wish more people heard it. But they still can. <laughs> <laughs> it's fresh, fresh off the presses still. It's 2019. It's cool.
Thanks so much to John and to Mike Boyd at Thrill Jockey for setting the interview up. John's got a really interesting mixture of just hardcore, freeform instrumental jazz slash percussion-based classical composition and more accessible space rock. I should warn you that if you look up Kid Millions, some of the albums with that name are by John. Some are by, I think, two different artists. There's a rapper. There's somebody doing country music. So his style is not that wide. You should look at johnwilliamcolpitz.com to see the definitive list of the stuff that John has actually worked on. And I can't recommend enough jumping into Oneida. Yes, they do have some long meditational instrumental pieces, which may not be for all listeners. But if you're into fish, if you're into King Crimson, Oneida presents a nice 21st century update of what progressive rock and roll can be that I found very appealing. Anyway, great drummer, very interesting guy, super smart. And speaking of super smart, next time, Barry Andrews. You may not have heard of him. He was the first keyboardist for XTC, but by 1981, he had gone on to co-front a really good British, I guess I'll call it a groove band, Shriekback. So please go subscribe to this podcast at Apple Music or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could go to the Nakedly Examined Music page, not the Partially Examined Life page, but the Nakedly Examined Music page on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and leave a nice review and rating of this podcast, I would be most grateful. And you know the drill, patreon.com slash Nakedly Examined Music. That's the way to make sure that these interviews actually keep on happening. And as I get more ads, if you use the feed from there, then you don't have to hear me read the ads. So I've got some great interviews already in the can. More I'm signing up for, more I'm trying to get. I hope you're also listening to my Pretty Much Pop podcast, where I and some other folks talk not only about music, but about TV and novels and podcasts and lots of other stuff. All right, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer. Signing right, right, right. You've always had what it takes to make it happen, and we know the right tools can make it easier. At Strayer University, we're always thinking about new ways to set you up for success. That's why we give you a brand new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program, so you can start off on the right foot and keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef.